Welcome to the Fram Park Center for Faith and Life in Scottsdale, Arizona. This is the Out of the Park podcast series. We invite you to join us for other programming you can find on our website at www.framparkcenter.org. Join us. I'm Wes Avram, the director of the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life in Scottsdale, Arizona. We are housed at Pinnacle Presbyterian Church, but seek to uh, have programs and conversations that reach beyond the interests of one congregation. Part of our work at the Fran Park Center is this podcast series called Out of the Park. We like to have uh, occasional and series of podcasts around particular topics of interest to us. One of those is an occasional series that um, we're putting together or that we're calling Holy Humans. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to think about biography as a way of opening to larger questions of meaning, of faith, of life, of church, of history, and where we are today uh, and where we have been through the stories of particular lives. Uh, in some traditions of the Christian faith, uh, that has been called sainthood and learning through sainthood and the communion of saints. I have with me today Dr. Mike Hegeman, who is the associate director of the center here and associate pastor at uh, Pinnacle Presbyterian Church. Mike is uh, no stranger to our podcast series. In fact, he's often our host. But today, Mike, you're the guest. Welcome to Out of the Park Podcasts. Thank you very much. It's fun to be sitting on this side of the the, the microphone, I would say. Yeah. We're talking about holy humans, Mike, and um, and particularly about how the lives of saints can help us understand uh, where we are culturally and ecclesially in the life of faith. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that, about biography and sainthood. You know, the term in the church uh, for uh, the study of the saints, of exemplary lives, is hagiography, the study of the saints. Uh, I'm curious from your studies about what you see as the difference between biography and hagiography. <laughs> it's a that is a it's a good question because I think when it would be interesting also to put autobiography into this mm-hmm. mix as well because one of the questions that often comes to me if you we studied somebody we might call officially a saint mm-hmm. or unofficially one of the saints of the church you know just. Uh, is that whether these people, any of them, would have thought of themselves as a saint during their own lifetime. You know, they themselves had a kind of a self-awareness of being holy. And so, and my, my I would probably answer in the negative at that. I think mm-hmm. there's probably, in the, I don't know if anyone we would hold up as a saint would have thought of themselves that way. And so this idea of um, does does biography, is that a large part of the creation of a saint? You know, in sense of how is it that we we use the telling of the story of somebody's life very carefully edited, you know, mm-hmm. a sense of I'm sure we want, you know, the, whether it's the church officially, the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, or how we tell the story of those who've gone on before us, that we're very selective and careful in how we present that story to highlight certain things that put them into that category they themselves wouldn't do. Well, let me ask you a question about yeah. editing. You know, lives are complicated, not just today. I think they've always been. I think you look back historically at someone's life and you see that they are like today. Anyone in the past is a mix of ignorance and insight, a mix of good and bad, a mix of mistake and uh, remarkable accomplishment. And every window or every life is a window to what has made them. 
And yet we hear the lives of saints as though they were lives, perfect lives, lives of miracle and lives of witness and lives of, of always being exemplars of the way we should live. What's that relationship between a complicated life and a saintly life in how we tell stories of lives? I think immediately of Jesus himself when he's even before he's passed on and you know and and his resurrection he's in the midst of his own people and they raise questions like saying we know this guy's biography I, who is he to come into our midst isn't he that carpenter's son isn't he they there are those who raise this question of we know his story why does he think he's such a hot shot or that other people think that he's they kind of contrast the miracle worker they see in their midst and the known biography and so if we if we move forward from Jesus again and again and again we're going to like like you say we're going to get human beings complicated human beings who have you know all the foibles of being human mm-hmm. that in order to designate them a saint or a holy person and elevate them as an exemplar, somebody to, to as a model. I think it does. It takes some careful editing sometimes, and I don't know mm-hmm. if if we're more maybe we're more willing to see the full humanity of some of the saints, like more recent saints, like uh, Teresa of Calcutta is one that as they raise this person up as an exemplar of of, of somebody who's committed uh, to responding to in the call to faith mm-hmm. a life of poverty a life of self-sacrifice and at the same time we have enough of her own writings her letters are very personal letters yeah. which shows that she had a deep uh distance from faith through much of her life like she said she wasn't ever sure god was really listening for maybe 40 or 50 years of her life well you know when when her journals and diaries were published and some of the dark night of the soul experience in her own life was revealed. So many of people, at least when I was watching the reception of that, so many people in the media uh, took that as as disproving the value of her life. Oh, look, Mother Teresa doubted. And yet so many people who lived the life of faith looked at that and said, well, of course. Who doesn't? So, which leads to the question I have about that relationship between perfection and imperfection. And do do we need to live a perfect life in order to live an exemplary life? You know, very recently I, I asked a large group of people within the church and said, how many of you here, I mean, raise your hand if you feel holy, you know, and or and maybe one person in the room half-heartedly r- raised her hand. And, <laughs> and... It's funny from that designation that we hear in the letters of Paul and other uh, other New Testament writers that says we're we're all holy, you know. So, mm-hmm. And that's, but it's it's a very interesting for us to claim that for ourselves. But we have been made holy. I mean, that the theological statement is we've been made holy in and through the love of God in Jesus Christ, you know. And and so I have to be honest. I don't feel holy, you know. I by myself and I. And I'd, I think, what, how difficult it is it to claim that identity and what it means, saying, okay, forget what, everything mm-hmm. you think about what it means to be holy. God says you are, you know. And I mean, through God's, we say God's loving, redemptive, forgiving love. God has restored the image of Christ in us. And so, I feel pretty in, imperfect, you know. And yet, I, I think my calling as a minister is to say, how do I help myself and others? 
see themselves with God's eyes, if that were even possible. Well, one of the things I love about being a pastor and doing memorial services and funerals is that traditional prayer of commendation we do at the end of a service in which we commend the one who has passed to the love that made them, to God's uh, redeeming love through eternity. And one of the phrases we pray when we pray the traditional prayer is we call that individual a sinner of God's redeeming. As though they're the exemplary quality of their life also has to do with God's action in their life. Right? I think about my own life, and I would like someone to look at, back my, at my life in a forgiving way, in a way that allows them to say his, the, the full arc of his life was about a particular thing. Despite himself, <laughs> despite circumstance, through it all there was a story that unfolded. The story has rocks along the way, has stones in the road, uh, but nevertheless is a story that can be told, uh, that lifts beyond, lifts above itself, that despite myself, I was about something uh, that was perhaps a window to God, despite myself. Is that what we do with other people's lives? You preach at memorial yeah. services. How right. Do you, how yeah. Do you? It's a fine. It's an interesting, interesting balance between those family members and friends who offer a eulogy and come up and they really want to tell you this is this person's accomplishments how and they want to lift up at all times how the good that this person either enacted or uh there's lots of praise in that you know there and the minister's role if we you know choose to accept it is to come in at that point and say to put that person's life into context of to say the theological word after that point to say this person's life despite their good and their bad mm-hmm. i mean in the midst of their good and their bad, all of this, their life was in 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 something larger than themselves, which we say is that arc you're talking about, <laughs> and it's God's arc at that point we want to point to. And in in hearing you say that is like, why is it that we wait until somebody has passed to name that and say this is a sinner of God's redeeming? You know, instead of every time we gather, we look at one another and saying you are a sin of a sinner of God's <laughs> redeeming. And therefore a saint. I mean, yeah. and that's, you know, and that's, I don't know if that I want to, that the, some people just might think of that as an onus, a weight that comes out on them saying, if I, wait, if I'm a saint, how hard do I have to live to maintain that? Yeah. Well, don't you think that some of that being of God's own redeeming is not simply about uh, making amends mm. or a large hand that somehow reaches down from the heavens and pats us on the back and says, there, there, it's okay, but rather or perhaps also a a way of making sense out of nonsense of making a way out of no way of saying that this that your life as a sinner of God's redeeming that God's redeeming is creating a story out of fragments out of you know these fragments I have shorn against my ruins T.S. Eliot said that as if in the fragments there is a coherent story that that stretches beyond yeah, no, that that idea of coherent story too then shows how we're linked uh, not only to one another here and now, but to those in the past. And I think that's why biography mm-hmm. is can be so important within the church. I mean, a sense of, oh, if you say biography, or now if we say hagiography, <laughs> that fancy word for, we're we're talking about the saints now. We're 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 shaping the story of those who've gone on before us as a way of saying uh, of encouragement. But also, uh, but mostly, uh, ultimately, is to remind us who we are in in God's sight. Sometimes those stories of 
meaning unfolding over time, don't get their power from congruence with other people's stories or value or val- or pre- or values of the community that's naming those stories. But sometimes, isn't it incongruent? Sometimes it's those stories that are at counterpoint to the values of the people who tell them that that's where their power lies. It's it's the counterpoint stories we name. Mother Teresa as a saint, because not only was her, in some ways, her life congruent with a set of values, it was incongruent with the society in which she lived. Right. In, in, incongruent sometimes with the, with the society, of course, where she steps away from material, the material to serve the poor in a way that's self-sacrificial. Mm-hmm. But it's also incongruent with perhaps the church's norms, maybe, or some ideas of that, because the, she in the midst of uh, her deep acts of faith her her inward questioning it accompanies that throughout her life and so there's a there's a sense of her, i think be able to hold now we can say holding that up says gives us all can give us all license to say i'm going to continue to act in faith whether i feel it at this mm-hmm. moment or not you know there's so good trouble good trouble right so and, the life that gets into good trouble is sometimes the life that tells a good story and what I what I find fascinating throughout history and the history of the church and telling these stories of the saints is that they'll lift up the very thing that causes them to be a scandal, mm-hmm. you know, at their own in their own time, and yet institution sometimes uh, uh, tames them, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, but I love the stories of of folks like Saint Francis of Assisi, you know, just somebody who, again, of noble birth, uh, somebody who was in the army and he. Uh, but he 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 bucks, I guess is the word. Mm-hmm. He he, he uh, you know he let abandons all of it because he responds to the gospel in a certain way that says, "Give up everything to be a preacher and to love," and therefore, and he does this radical thing, and everybody questions the radical at the beginning. He becomes a stumbling block for a church that's established, for a society that's established, where you said you might, as a noble person, give your third son mm-hmm. to the church to be a, a monk or a priest, but not certainly kind of your first one. I don't know where Francis fell in that order, but the idea of why would somebody who could inherit everything from the father, his father and, and his family give it all up to do something radical and yet and do it in a way that the church even questions as well wait no no we've got an established way of doing this you know don't don't abandon all your wealth and your clothes and your everything and you know go preach to the birds <laughs> we don't know if he actually preached to the birds or not but it kind of characterizes that so and yet over time even though he's done this radical thing which causes a a scandal perhaps mm-hmm. in, in to the society and to the church and the church over time tames him and makes him a model of, you know, uh, of subjective policy. I mean, it's like he's... So isn't there that there is a balance between hagiography as a way of taming the mm, rough edges mm-hmm. so as to control them, right? or hagiography as a way of recognizing that that life, while not recognized in the moment, taught us more than we knew. Yeah, yeah. Martin and Luther King might be a good example. Absolutely, right? yeah. And that... And there are taming elements around Martin Luther King's memory as well, too. You know, there's certain folks we want to ra- we want to raise up, uh, you know, his the comments that he has about mm-hmm. unity and overcoming things. But God forbid we talk about what he said about the Vietnam War. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so, you know, going back through time, some of the things that I find most radical about the saints 
is they're overcoming the same kinds of things that the church as an institution sometimes overlooks. Like, and mm. at the heart of this is slavery. You know, we see this early on in the Christian church. There was a tension between how the early Christians, who were they within the church? You know, it's like out in the society, they were wealthy and poor. They were enslaved. They were of different races and nations and tongues and and they were male, male and female. We'll just kind of name some of the, the basic dichotomies. And yet in the church, they were called to, to oneness. Mm-hmm. And when, Give us an example. Okay. Well, if we look back, there's um, early on in the church, uh, so, or I say early on, it's 200 years into the experience, <laughs> uh, there was a persecution throughout North Africa of the Christian, Christian church and, Christ, and people becoming Christians especially um, because they made the society nervous mm-hmm. when you would leave behind social norms, mm-hmm. ideas of wealth, and also social class. We have a couple of saints. Gender norms? Gender norms as well. We have a couple of saints. Um, uh, we we know them by their names, Perpetua and Felicity. Hmm. And uh, in what would be modern-day Tunisia, Tunisia today, in Carthage, they they were catechumens. They were studying to be Christians and about just about to be baptized when they're arrested. And many people think that the Romans were con- they were offended by these people following Jesus, and uh, but really what it was is that they were stepping away from the norms of the society, for the the gods which were so integrated into their society, but also giving up, I mean, op- of wealth, mm-hmm. and they were they were equalizing sometimes in the church. So a person of noble birth and a person who had is a slave sat down and ate together. And, and so we see this with these two uh, women, Perpetua and Felicitas, and we know their story because they journaled and wrote, at least Perpetua did, uh, about their experiences once they were arrested and persecuted and beaten in prison. And they were only asked to renounce their faith. And uh, family members came and begged them, said, no, mm. just give up this silliness. And, uh, but they, um, they said no. And they said, we, I can only be... I am a Christian, and that's all I could ever be, hmm. and called. And they, and they both faced the two of them both faced death, but as sisters, which is you know one of mm-hmm. highly noble birth and money, and the other one as a slave, and together in the arena, mm-hmm. attacked by wild animals and um, gladiators, they were sisters. I'm going to guess that their story, bound together, uh, inspires different responses at different times in history or it wouldn't be a story we continue to tell. And perhaps that class difference between them or life experience difference speaks to us today in a way the martyrdom for their faith might have speaked so strongly in another age. That's that's an observation that I want to ask you to respond to and maybe talk a little bit about the, even though a saintly life tries to tell a simple story, it is nevertheless a classic story because because it's complex. Yeah, you can read many things into a story like that. And different generations, we hear different things. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even even that phrase, that one sentence from the Apostle Paul, is heard differently in the different generations. When he says, um, "For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus." And so, the people who first heard that the real the conflict of the moment he's addressing happened to be those in the church who were from a greek background or meant greek roman whatever non-jew and jewish people in the same congregation mm-hmm. and so what he, he he said 
they they might say, oh, we this is the most pressing issue. We're going to deal with this in the church. We're of, of one race or one people. And at the same time, they then might have ignored what he said. They were no longer slave and free, no longer male and female. And mm-hmm. so these... These the church struggled with a little more over time. You know, this proclamation, um, this was scandalous. I mean, I think this was really scandalous about the early church is any church that embodied those things made the society nervous and made the church as it wanted, it sought after legitimacy in the society. Those kinds of things most made them nervous. One of the things that I find fascinating among many things about the Christian tradition is the way in which the tradition has tended to lift up stories that critique the, the, the tradition. There's an internal critique of the very tradition that sets itself forward through this telling of stories of those who were scandalous within it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we tell those stories over and over again as a way of making a tra- the tradition. We talk about the tradition being broken as the means by which the tradition is, is built. Yeah, that's it's scandalous. Right. And sometimes we have to be shot. We have to be startled into the scandalous nature of, you know, biblical proclamations, uh, but also then to the lives of these saints over time. How we, we may lose a sense of how radical and radical goes to a sense of root, rootedness, how deep down, uh, deeply offensive or a scandal that sure. some of these saints lives were. And then that we forget that they're sometimes they're often tamed, like we've said it before, we said it earlier, mm-hmm. that these folks are tamed in the church, and we need to be but never, per- this. but never perfectly, right? Yeah, oh right. yeah, right. Yeah, that's what I <laughs> no, that's what I that's what I love is that the a story. I mean, even later on, which those that Galatian context that I mentioned earlier comes alive in the church, even in the last two hundred years or so in in America, where where you know in the seventeen hundreds. Uh, even in a place like Philadelphia, where churches were "quote unquote" integrated, which meant there were white people and people of you know European mm-hmm. descent and people of African descent in the same building, they still sat sat separately, mm-hmm. and they took communion at different times in one and successively, so that there was a hierarchy in all of this. And there was um, in Philadelphia, there was a man named Absalom Jones, who looked and along with a colleague named Richard Allen, both African Americans who. Uh, looked at this situation and said, you know what Paul said about this? He said, mm-hmm. if if folks of different races can't sit down and eat together, and here it meant communion, they can't eat together. As Paul said, the, the gospel, the cross has been negated. Christ mm-hmm. died for nothing. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I mean, that's what's radical when Paul said it. He's, you know, he said, yeah. you know, we, we have all these theories of atonement and what it all means. And Paul says, look, if people of different races can't sit down and be in church together, eating mm-hmm. together, sitting in the same pew, Jesus died for nothing. And we may have somehow that we, we skipped over that until it comes to these quintessential and scandalous moments where somebody uh. goes, oh, you know what? This is wrong. This is absolutely <laughs> wrong. And Absalom Jones and Richard Allen kind of moved the African-American members of that church out down the street, founded a new denomination of church, but did that not to, not to foster or further, um, further uh, schism in the church, but to say, we choose to embody the gospel in this way, where all might be welcome and all might sit together and eat. Our time is running short. Yeah, right. But you, in telling that story, you helped me understand something that maybe we need to do another podcast on, mm. which is how the life of a saint is ne- never, in the end, points to itself, but points beyond itself to the wider community and to Christ, Christ's self. 
Christ himself, that a life that is transparent to the story of Christ is, or that in our own lives that is transparent to the story of Christ, is a key into how our life can be told in a saintly way. I agree. Well, on that note, <laughs> this is Fran Park Center. This is our Out of the Park Podcasts. Uh, stay tuned for further episodes in our series, Holy Humans. If you want to know more about the Fran Park Center, please take a look at franparkcenter.org. Thanks for joining us at our Out of the Park podcast series. If you like this program and would like to check out more, go to our website at www.framparkcenter.org.